I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Tech journalist Alex Kratoski untangles the web for us, and critic Matthew Sweet tells us about a wartime propaganda film that transcends its origins. Alex Kratoski is an academic and journalist who writes about and studies technology and interactivity. She is currently a visiting fellow in the Media and Communications Department at the London School of Economics and Political Science and Research Associate at the Oxford Internet Institute. That's a mouthful. It is. <laughs> Alex writes for The Guardian and The Observer newspapers and hosts Tech Weekly, their technology podcast. She presented the Emmy Award winning, Emmy and BAFTA Award winning BBC Two series Virtual Revolution and more recently the BBC Radio 4 series Digital Human. And her first book is Untangling the Web, What the Internet is Doing to You, which is what we're going to talk about today. So, Alex, thank you very much for joining us on Little Atoms today. Thank you. You make me sound very impressive, I have to say. <laughs> it's a long It's, it's a long incredibly resume. intimidating. <laughs> And also, by the way, you're setting me up. You're like, it's your first book. Like, that's hard, right? Everybody has to write a first book. Yeah, Yeah, I know. It's true. There has to be a first one. You can never write another first book. You've been researching the stuff in this book throughout your career over over 13 years, you mentioned at some point, and things are probably a bit different now, but at that time, the internet was a completely new field. Yeah, yeah, no, it was run by hamsters. Mm. You know, there were these little guys in the back on their wheels. You could hear the squeaking of the wheels if you listen closely. And um, one thing hamsters are renowned for is not doing very much research, so there wasn't a great deal of research out there at the time into the internet. So um, is that one of the reasons why you thought it would be an interesting field? study. No, I'll tell you what it is, actually. Um, Although I'm most well-known for my technology expertise, I'm actually a social psychologist. Mm -hmm. And as a social psychologist, what it means is it basically, I'm looking at the influence of the social world on the individual. That could be anywhere in the world. That could be, you know, that could be looking at group behavior. It Mm -hmm. could be looking at social behavior. It could be looking at communities. And we deal with things like trust and we deal with things, you know, like persuasion and, and all of that kind of stuff. It also, as an aside, it also gives me, it kind of gives me a free pass to be a wallflower at parties because that means I can kind of stand back and watch people. I'm an official, I'm the doctor of people watching. Is you're supposed to be working when you're at parties. <laughs> you can't take it off, right? You can never take it off. The albatross around your neck. But I'll tell you what it was. So it was around 1999 that I started doing a television program about computer games. It was called Bits and that was on Channel 4. And I remember this experience on Bits where it suddenly occurred to me that this internet thing 
that we'd kind of been making fun of a little bit Mm -hmm. was actually something that was really interesting from a psychological point of view. Specifically, one of my one of my colleagues had gone off and played around in a massively multiplayer online game, Mm -hmm. which at the time I believed was just for people who sucked mints and had no lives. I then became one of those people <laughs> like as I sort of dove deeper and deeper into the phenomena of what was going on. And she came back and rather than talking about things like, you know, destroying thousands and thousands of rats or um, getting swords of uberness, what she talked about was the, the community dynamics, mm-hmm. the interpersonal dynamics, making friends, people saying, no, you want to join this group and not that group. And that's actually what piqued my interest Mm -hmm. was the psychology of this. And so I thought, I dug around a little bit more and I started to discover things like um, people's emotional responses, actual sort of offline meat space emotional responses to things that were happening online. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea that hierarchies and governance was being imported into the virtual space where literally none of these things needed to happen. It's a digital environment. It's made of ones and zeros. And so as I started to dig around, I actually started to think, well, this is an interesting place to learn about people right? Humans, how humans interact with one another. Because in many ways, it's a controlled environment. Mm. It's a fabricated space. And what we bring to it as we try and colonize it is very much our kind of our human sociability, our human psychology. And so ultimately, like I say, although I'm known for the technology, it's the social psychology of interaction that actually really gets me off. (laughs) And of course, I mean, to state the most obvious thing possible, this is we're talking about groups of people who aren't really together, right? These are well, these yeah. are virtual groups, and I guess you know there'd been things like I don't know what, like ham radio or CB radio, or you know things like that in the past, or when telephones were first introduced, and there were bars where you could talk to people on telephones and things. So there'd been that sort of virtual network on a very small scale. But again, even ham radio people are people that even. World of Warcraft players would look down on I would imagine. It was very niche. Still a really, really <laughs> strong community. Again, it's one of those things. It's like I was saying to some colleagues the other day, I'm currently obsessed with hobos <laughs> because hobos is, is a very similar thing, right? In the US, you've got these, you've basically got people who ride the rails. You still do. It's not just a kind of like beat generation mm-hmm. fantasy. People do jump on trains and they go. Yeah. And do they still have bindles? <laughs> they do. Yes. It's a sort of as soon as you become a hobo, you, you get, you get your, given your you bindle. Get your bindle. But the in a similar way to the internet and to these things that you're talking about, ham radio, C B radio, mm-hmm. what you're kind of seeing is you're seeing people who are distributed, who have a sense of community. And social psychologists have been talking about this sense of community for mm-hmm. as long as the discipline has been around. So the the early, early nineteen hundreds as it really firmly became established, mm-hmm. sort of a little bit earlier when people started to talk about this. You know, it's this idea that I have an identity, I have a social identity that is not just about what is in my physical immediate space, mm-hmm. but it's a sense of who I am. And that's what we would call a reference group. Now, it just so happens that it's easier because of the internet and because of these other technologies Mm -hmm. to kind of enact behavior that is associated with that reference group and to kind of gather virtually as opposed to physically. And that actually, that's a really interesting, relatively new thing, the simplicity Mm -hmm. with which we can enact those reference group behaviors by the very nature of the fact that we are, we're virtually proximate with one another. We're kind of, we're playing around. They can become a really, these things that may have been sort of peripheral in the past can now become much more predominant in our lives because we can see people and virtually we can see what they're doing and what they're saying 
online and use that as a reference point for our own sense of who we are within this social group. The other thing that I guess was, well, has in common with those older things like ham radio and CB radio, but is unusual in comparison to groups of people in real life, as no doubt we'll be saying many times (laughs) during the interview. I prefer meat space. In meat space. The other thing (laughs) that makes it different to meat space, unless, of course, you know, one frequents a certain type of creepy party, is um, the concept of anonymity. So from the very early days of the internet, we're talking about the development of a community, a group of people coming together with similar interests to interact. But a key aspect of that is at the time, nobody knew who those people were. Absolutely. And I think that that's still a really important Mm. part. Well, I think we'll talk about this because things are changing, aren't they? The sort of attitude and we'll we'll get on to that. Let's talk about the history of it, I guess, first of all. But then the attitude towards anonymity has changed over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, again, as you say, we'll talk about that a bit more because that's sort of a commercially driven evolution. Mm -hmm. Anonymity, historically, you know, it was people on listservs or, or whatever were literally only associated with a mm-hmm. username that they that they mm-hmm. created and it could be as close to or as far from their real name as they wanted. And Sherry Turkle, who's a kind of um, the, the doyen of this space, certainly in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. she spoke a lot about anonymity and the kind of the multiplicity of the self, the fact that within us, we have many selves. And I have to say, I remember that when I was... I guess in fourth grade in the US, I wrote about all of these different selves that I think it was Nadia Comaneci had. I was obsessed with her because I loved gymnastics. You know, she was this person and this person and this person. And, and I think it was Mrs. Long, that was her name. Mrs. Long stood me up in front of the class and said, Do you know what people are called if they have multiple selves? They're called schizophrenic. And I was like, But that's not what I meant. But that's an interesting point. But that's not what I meant. Anyway, so, so Sherry Turkle talks a lot about this kind of multiplicitousness of ourselves mm-hmm. and the energy anonymity aspect is kind of neat because in the same way that you, for example, have within um, mindfulness traditions in Buddhism, this is where we're going. Can you mm-hmm. believe it? I can't believe it. How did that come out of my mouth? But you, you have things where you kind of, as you're sort of going through meditation and something kind of interrupts, you name it and you put it to the side mm-hmm. or you name it and you move on with it. You kind of do that you, or you were able to do that in cyberspace mm-hmm. in the old days you were able to kind of name that aspect of yourself and keep it separate from, say, the other aspect of yourself and yourselves that, you know, make up (laughs) you. And so that's a, you know, that was a really interesting, playful time that, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, has evolved. I'm John Lloyd, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, I guess one of the reasons why, and we forget this, I think, nowadays, but we're talking about a time when there was like, you know, 12, 15 people on the internet, much smaller. Now there's billions of people with with access to the internet. But at this point, we are talking about possibly even hundreds, you know, very few hundreds of people who were connected to the internet and were going on these listservs things. So... Before we get to the sort of commercialization of the idea of anonymity and identity, has it not just changed because it just becomes more difficult when the sheer mass of people that are on the internet changes things? Certainly, because if you have a sense that you are accountable for mm. your actions because you have, although you're anonymous, what people tended to describe as something called pseudonymity, mm. which is basically you are known by your online handle mm. as opposed to what's also known as your wallet name, mm. um, which is the offline identifier as it were and yeah for sure there even if you were operating under a pseudonym if there were say 200 300 400 even a thousand people 
there was probably a pretty good likelihood that you knew somebody or you knew somebody who knew somebody. Mm -hmm. And it was quite an intimate network, which means, of course, that everybody was kind of in it together. And we see this nowadays when we have these amazing communities and they start out really, really small and they've got this incredible kind of sense of camaraderie, this sort of esprit de corps, you know, Mm. this real kind of like, we are in it together, starts getting bigger and you start to kind of lose the edges. You start to, you're not really in control. In fact, there's a really good offline example of this. In 1973, there was a group of people who decided in Denmark to Mm -hmm. occupy a former, I think it was an army base, in the center of Copenhagen. And they decided to call that Christiania. Mm -hmm. And Christiania decided, settled itself as a free town, and it operated on, you know, sort of that kind of communal, very hippie, very socialist, you know, trading Mm -hmm. woven baskets and hair pie and whatever it was that they traded. Sorry, anybody <laughs> in Christiania. And, you know, they basically operated as a free town, as a group, small group mm-hmm. of like-minded individuals who had rules and systems that everybody agreed to. I'm sure and I'm positive that um, there were meetings to have meetings to have meetings about, you know, all of the different hierarchies and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, desperately trying to avoid hierarchy and whatever. But what happened with the evolution of Christiania is that as it became more and more interesting to other people who wanted to kind of jump on board Mm -hmm. with this quite interesting social experiment and more and more people moved in, they're also turned towards other people who thought, well, I can exploit this in some way. So fast forward to the Mm -hmm. early 80s, and that's, you know, just a mere like seven or eight years Mm -hmm. later, and Christiania is basically a slum. Mm. There's Pusher Alley, which is basically where all the people who go to sell really nasty drugs. It's completely overrun. There's there's murder and it's a terrible place. Of course, the original people are still there and they're moving further and further around the lake in order to just kind of retain that sort of exchanging cabbages Mm -hmm. vibe that they had initially started. Mm -hmm. But as people started to kind of see the loopholes, they jumped on board and tried to exert their own interests, which then in some ways the originators felt undermined the interests. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that in other, you can see that in online communities. A famous one is a a community called Lambda Moo. Mm. And Lambda Moo was a text-based virtual space. And I call it a virtual space, a space in particular, because it was comprised of conceptual rooms or Mm. gardens or, you know, statues or whatever that were all created by their members, but through text. It's kind of like a text adventure, if Mm -hmm. you recall those, where it's like, enter a room and then there's a big description of what the room is and you can interact with stuff and the angry gnome is at the end of the corridor waving his <laughs> waving his dagger and you end up dead. That kind of space, but it was all sort of collaboratively produced. And it became a very interesting place, not just for people who were experimenting in this in this space to come and, and play around, but also for researchers and journalists to come along and say, what is this? <laughs> what on earth is this new world? Oh my goodness, this is fascinating. There's a fabulous article which is actually, I would say, probably the reason why I do what I do. And it was written, and Julian knows this, <laughs> it was written in 1993, and it was published in The Village Voice. It was written by an author named Julian DeBell, mm-hmm. in which he describes 
what the title of the article is, is A Rape in Cyberspace. Mm -hmm. And what happened, and he later renamed that for his longer book, which was published in 1996, which is called My Tiny Life. And in 96, he, he gave it a little bit more structure and focused more on the fact that a particular infraction that happened, a particular incident that happened that threatened the core inner community, it kind of burst the bubble, destroyed their power, the, the magic curtain was lifted a little bit, they became vulnerable, um, turned this collective, this group of ragtag people who were working together and sort of creating a cool thing, it turned that database right into a society mm -hmm. in which everybody had to because of this infraction came together and installed a death penalty or installed certain rules voted people into different hierarchical structures and governance and so you know you can see these very very social and human phenomena that happen and so that's possibly one of the reasons why as the web has expanded and as more and more people have come in, mm -hmm. the originators or, you know, the various communities have split off. There's other reasons, too. Like, for example, there's the magic number that, that Robin Dunbar from uh, University of Oxford talks about, which is 150. As soon as you get to larger than 150, people tend to split into smaller groups, smaller mm -hmm. factions and all of that. So, you know, there's again, it, it just goes back to simple human psychology. It goes back to this, this social world that we operate in. And so, yes, as you are unable necessarily to keep track of everybody that was in the community, pseudonyms or not, anonymity or not, because more and more people were coming in and they were kind of messing around with the social structures. Mm -hmm. Now, there are obvious now, if you come right forward in time, there's a obvious reason still why people might want to retain forms of anonymity that aren't just to do with setting up some utopian internet society, but people need to keep their anonymity. They might be an activist or, you know, they might be um, a victim of violence or something. It seems like we're going in the opposite direction. And you mentioned yourself this is due to commercial pressure. So let's talk about why we're changing our mind about anonymity. Yeah, well, I think it's not just... I honestly, truly, and adamantly adamantly believe that anonymity is not just important for people who are activists or mm -hmm. have something that you know that they need to retain secret i think anonymity is essential for human development as you're trying to figure out who you are in this world and this is something that primarily happens in your adolescence but as you move through the world from you know from birth all the way to death we're constantly adopting and discarding different selves there's a psychological um, theory of self-development called the possible selves model in which you think, oh, that could be me. I might, that might be me. Hmm, I'll try that identity on. And if it fits, then I'll you know, wear it for a while. And if you wear the wrong kind of identity for your social group, or even for yourself, you know, you may decide that something that you've done isn't for you, right? But if you have to share that with everybody, then you're less likely to try on different kinds of identities, mm -hmm. you know, because the stakes are way too high. And in some ways, the idea of being able to be anonymous and to be, you know, try on something different that is potentially dangerous. Mm -hmm. And by dangerous, I don't mean, you know, try on an axe murderer identity. Don't do that, right? <laughs> just that's just don't, right? <laughs> but, you know, just something that's just counter-normative, counter-intuitive for your group. You wouldn't do that. If you weren't, if you didn't have the opportunity to mm -hmm. be anonymous, so I'm I'm passionate about the, you know, for example, um, say you, and this is this is an example that's given by one of the people whom I interviewed for the book, who's talking about uh, he's from Tor, the Onion mm -hmm. Rooter, which is a system, it's a relatively complex system that allows people to be anonymous 
or as anonymous as they can be as they're as they're going around the web just through the nature of various things that go from here to yada and up and back. Those are all technical terms, by the way. Anyway, so what Andrew says is he says, well, say, you know, you've got a divorce or say you've just come out of rehab, Mm -hmm. right? The last thing that you want is to be reminded of that, right? And in fact, you know, if people are alcoholics, they will delete all of their phone numbers, Mm -hmm. right? And start from scratch. And I know this, you know, alcoholics, drug addicts, whatever, They'll start from scratch so that they can, so that they're not reminded, so that they don't have the temptation before. So redevelopment, re-self-development is really, really important. And anonymity is a huge part of that. Anyway, going back to the commercial pressures, now that I've stood in my soapbox a little bit. The commercial pressures are there simply because the internet seems free, but it actually isn't. Um, one of the programs that we did for the BBC series was called, uh, the virtual revolution was called The Cost of Free. And in that, we started to query, you know, what the relationship is between the, the search results mm-hmm. that we receive or, you know, the social networking opportunities that we receive or whatever. It feels free, mm-hmm. but actually it's not because we're exchanging our personal data. And one of the ways that our personal data becomes more valuable for database holders, for software developers for companies like Google, Facebook, and anybody else online is if you have a lot of data on a person, right? Increasingly, as that data is becoming valuable to advertisers and to people who want to buy that, because that's basically how the internet funds itself, Mm -hmm. they want to consolidate all that data so they don't have lots and lots of different databases and they don't have lots of different data points. The easiest way to do that is around your wallet name, is around a single identity, mm-hmm. a single point of identity. And that that's good, that's interesting, but it's not necessarily the it's not necessarily the greatest thing for self-development in what we believe to be an anonymous space. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. This week I'm talking to Alex Kotowski and we're talking about her book Untangling the Web, What the Internet is Doing to You. Alex, so at the end of that last part you raised this image of a of an alcoholic deleting all of their numbers out of their mobile phones to try and erase their past and actually this is something that the internet is making much, much harder than it used to be. In the, well, I guess it's been around, what, 20 years, roughly? I think I've probably been using the internet for about 20 years. In that time, I've put an insane amount of data about myself online. You know, I like to think I've got a couple of decades left in me. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more data put on there. A bit later in the show, we'll talk about issues about privacy and about whether or not it's a good idea for me to have put that data on there already. It's a bit late for that now. But what I want to talk about, first of all, is something we don't often think about, is what happens to that stuff when I die? Ah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's... uh... So I recently had a death in my family. My stepmother, Judy, was an extraordinary woman. She had a filing system of her own. (laughs) I mean, everything in extraordinary precision and totally complete, but organized to her own tune. 
And similarly, I was terrified to go into her computer because basically the house and her, her sort of mental filing system of all the objects in the house was effectively replicated in the virtual space. You know, you think about opening up a laptop and, and within that laptop is a kind of, it's, I mean, all it is is another room that's just full of stuff. So yeah, there's that element. Um, I would highly recommend that people develop a digital legacy and sort of consider what else beyond just your physical artifacts that you have that is important to you and make sure somebody out there has even if it's written down and put into a safe deposit box has you know all of your passwords and all of your email accounts and all of your bank accounts and all of those different things you know Flickr account all those things make Mm. sure that you've got your passwords written down somewhere so what happens to the data after you die well it continues it lives on it's there there's nobody, you know, there's nobody out there who's going to be like, well, that person's dead, delete, because they have no way of doing that unless somebody phones up and says this person is no longer with us. It is us. It is still part of us. And it's interesting because pre-web, pre all of this sort of databasization, like that word, I just made that up. I don't know if you can tell. I stumbled on it, but, you know, people know what I'm talking about. But previous to all of this, people would die and their effects would be distributed. And then as the people to whom the effects were distributed died, then the artifacts generally just kind of disappeared. They lost their meaning, Mm -hmm. right? Now we have artifacts. We have digital artifacts, virtual artifacts that will persist and persist and persist and persist as Mm. long as the database is around. And I mean, that's interesting because eventually, you know, what somebody said at some point that, you know, there's going to be more dead people on the internet than alive people on the internet. It's some kind of ridiculous figure. That in and of itself is interesting because then what happens to the internet? Does it become an artifact of history? Right now, it's very, very much alive. Mm. So what happens to your stuff? Well, it's still around and I certainly hope that now that you're thinking about it you make a list and just put it in a safe deposit box or a sealed envelope or something so that if you do happen to go before the next couple of decades as you know I hope for you as well then the people that you leave behind can at least figure out what on earth your organization system is (laughs) for them think of them there's going to be a lot of people in the future suddenly getting six months of Spotify accounts and massive collections of pornography in their worlds, I think. <laughs> um, I think you're right. I just want to look at one other aspect of what the internet is doing to us as people, as individuals, before we move on. And um, I'm going to brace myself for the audible gasps that I'm going to be able to hear through the radio from the audience when I mention the name of Baroness Susan Greenfield here. <laughs> but um, let's talk a little bit about this idea that, uh, to put it in blunt terms, that the, the internet is making us more stupider. So, now, <laughs> yeah. um, Nicholas Carr was on the show, actually, a couple of years oh, ago, brilliant. talking about the shallows. It was a really, a really, obviously, a lot more nuanced argument than often is what is portrayed in the media about this idea of the internet making us, let's not describe it as making us stupid, but, you know, changing our brain chemistry in, in, in some sort of way which we might think is not necessarily a good thing. And I guess, I mean, it would be equally naive to suggest that it's not, this completely new thing is not in some way having some sort of change on us in that way, because it's changed the rest of society in ways that were, were unimaginable. So what's, you know, what sort of credible research is there on there this sort of thing, any. Alex? None That's at all. That's the problem. That actually is the problem. And so 
while the the front of the book says what the internet is doing to you, I'm loath to say that the internet is actually doing anything to you. Mm. I want to emphasize that the internet is a technology, right? And it connects human beings to human beings and human beings to the things that other human beings have created. And that's what it is, Mm -hmm. right? It's not doing anything to us. If anything is happening to us, if anything is happening to us, then it's perpetuated by the human beings doing it to one Mm -hmm. another. Now, when you talk about your your physiology and your biology and all of that, it's very, 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 very difficult to isolate the effects of a single Mm -hmm. input in our world onto our physiologies. And I swear, if anybody does produce for me or for anybody, for the world, a research paper in which there is evidence that it is doing something to us. I will listen to it and I will read it and I will, you know, I'll take it. Absolutely. I'm not one of these people who dismisses it outright. Sure. Fine. Just show me some evidence. Like, that's the problem that I have. Similarly, on the other side, I'm not going to say it does absolutely nothing to you. Because, again, this is such an impassioned argument, but nobody's ever actually Mm -hmm. done any evidence. There was a lot of this kind of debate, you know, around the time of the telegraph, around the time of the television, around the time of radio, around the time of the telephone, around the time of the automobile, around computer games, all of these things. And, And there's a, you know, in the 80s, it was all about video nasties. And I think that what we have to remember and what people within media studies often talk about but is often left within the the ivory tower of media studies, what we forget is that we experience inputs, whether it's media inputs, information inputs, social inputs, psychological inputs, environmental inputs. We experience all of these different things to such a degree that it literally would be impossible to identify what is happening just because of the internet, Mm -hmm. ultimately. It's just a big sort of smoosh of all this. As a total, as as an interjection here, there was somebody that I interviewed for for the chapter on sex and sort of what is the internet doing to our attitudes about sex. And and she said, listen, you know, all this stuff about hypersexualization, all this stuff about all these things that seem to be happening. She says, you can also point at the pharmaceutical industry for that because they're producing hormones or they're producing drugs or they're producing even marketing tools that are, you know, that are trying to encourage or whatever. So you can find your demon in anything. Mm -hmm. Just show me the evidence and I will happily discuss it. We're going to come back to that chapter a little bit later on. But um, yeah, I just wanted to raise the nuanced bit of uh, Nicholas Carr's argument was this idea that, you know, what the internet does is it presents all of this information to us, so much information, but in a in a new way, in a different way, which is possibly changing how much of that information, how much time we can spend absorbing that information and that sort of thing. And I think that's a more interesting argument, yeah. certainly. Well, I think there's an even more interesting argument, which is basically if it's presenting that information, who's deciding how that information yeah. is presented in the first place? We can take responsibility, right? I just want to point this out. We do have agency in this. We are in control of ourselves. If there's a lot of information coming at you, then you can stop and say, well, I just want to focus on this little thing for a little while. We don't have to constantly chase, you know, chase the, the virtual dragon, as it were. <laughs> we don't have to constantly keep, like, superficially, which is what Nicholas's mm-hmm. argument is, superficially skipping across. We don't have to do that. 
You know, we don't have to know everything. We can sort of explore things in a little bit more detail if we wish. It's there. It's just like when libraries opened, you know, think about Google like a giant library, because frankly, that's what it is. Did people sort of run to the library and say, oh, my God, look at all these books. Ah, <laughs> I don't know what to do with all these books. How do I do the books, 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 books? I'm going to read them all. No, no, they didn't do that, did they? They were like, I'm going to choose this book. This book is an interesting book for me. I'm going to look at this book. We can do that with the internet, right? We are in control. I'm Molly Oldfield and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Okay, you mentioned the chapter in the book on a changing attitudes to sex via the medium of the internet. And I want to introduce this, but first of all, I want to introduce us to a, a person. I can't remember if this is the person you've just quoted, but um, I want to talk about Cindy Gallup, who mm-hmm. is someone who has a rather a hands-on approach to, uh, to research in she, this field. <laughs> she certainly does. It, it wasn't Cindy that I was referencing mm-hmm. before. It was actually Petra Boynton, who's, oh, a, British, yeah. who's a British... Um, yes, I know Petra. Yeah, so Petra was the woman that I spoke with um, about the uh, hypersexualization. <laughs> no, Cindy is a fascinating woman. I, I remember meeting her for the very first time, and I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know who she was. I had no idea... And Basically, somebody said, you should talk to Alex. And so she sat and she talked at me. <laughs> and I was like sort of blown away. Ah, what is happening? And I got the full pitch for Make Love Not Porn. The full pitch. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Ah, <laughs> there's so much information. See, there you go. That wasn't the internet. That was a person throwing lots of information at me. Cindy is a self-proclaimed woman in her, I think, mid-50s who enjoys dating younger men. Like sort of half her age that's her bag and she digs it and you know she has a good time and more power to her and um she says that what she has experienced what she's learned through her sort of sexual activity with Mm -hmm. these men that she's dating uh, is that they're the way that they have sex has changed and she believes it's that it's because of the internet well in fact i think really what she argues is that it's not because of the internet but it's because of porn Mm -hmm. pornography and that's I just want to remind people that is not just something that happened when the internet happened. No, but the internet has obviously made pornography not just more ubiquitous, but more importantly, more available. You know, you don't have to have that awkward conversation with a news agent anymore. That's right. Or get a... uh, a, Find it in railway sightings. Exactly. No, no, it certainly has made it more available, undoubtedly. And in fact, there's uh, there's something out there that's called, a, a researcher um, identified it as the triple A engine of the virtual space for pornography and for anything that could potentially, you know, that people could consume and consume and consume. And the triple A engine is anonymity. So again, you don't have to have that awkward conversation with the news agent. Anonymity, availability, and affordability. So affordability, it's free or very cheap. Availability, it's just fair by a click of a button. So for sure, you know, the internet is a triple A engine for (laughs) pornography. But I do still want to emphasize that what Cindy is talking about is porn. She's not talking about the internet. Perhaps more people are engaging in porn. There is interesting research to suggest that people still have the same response to pornography. You know, like kids who run into porn are actually embarrassed. Kelsapris, they're embarrassed and they're in many of the experiences that I've read about are sort of, they feel sick, they don't know what to do about it or with it or anything like that. You know, so the experience of, of looking 
looking at porn is in many ways identical to how it was before. It's just that you click through and you accidentally get that. So specifically what Cindy did was to combat what she views as a problematic, problematic behaviors. Is she, yeah, she has set up sites and she set up campaigns to try and educate not just young girls, but also young boys that the things that you think are normal in sex, because that's what you saw in pornography mm-hmm. are not actually normal, right? And she does that through a really clever series of websites that use not just storytelling, but also use examples, use statistics and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, she's a, she's a really interesting lady. I think it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic crusade. It, it really uh, is. And yeah, as you said, oh, more power to her. But you mentioned a couple of other points in that chapter of people that are... Like educators, I guess, who are trying to use, you know, there's this idea that porn on the internet is is a monolithic bad thing that's doing bad things to us. But there are people who have been able to turn that around and use those tools for educational purposes for young people who might be come across that stuff in a railway siding once upon a time and be embarrassed and horrified by it. Absolutely. So it's not just in that kind of like, you've seen this, here, let me help you with this. But it's also people who are more generally referred to as the sex positive movement. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the, the king and perhaps the queen of the sex positive movement is Dan Savage, mm-hmm. who is a podcaster in the US and has recently become, uh, I believe, popular in the UK for his appearance on the TV program Sex Box. I was thrilled when I found out that he was going to be on Sex Box. I didn't know that. Yes, he was. He Not was that one I would of the... have watched it anyway. Yeah. I'm a big fan of his, uh, yeah, his writing and his podcast. Exactly. Yeah, his Amer- this American Life appearance is a particularly good. Yes. Look out for them. Yeah, when he and Ira get together. So there's always sparks. Um, but yeah, it's specifically looking at, at Savage Love, which is the Dan Savage podcasts, and The Stranger, which is, which is his column. He is very much about, look... Do what you want to do, but make sure you communicate as much as you possibly can and do not do something that leaves you or your partner curled up in a fetal position in the middle of the room crying. Like, don't do something that will psychologically harm you. He is, um, unless, of course, you're really into that. I don't know. Perhaps you are. But he's, you know, he's very much used the tools of the web to communicate that message. A great example is the YouTube channel that he basically started it's called It Gets Better. And in It Gets Better, um, he encouraged older people who are gay, who have come out, who came out, you know, a while before and had come to terms with and have, are, are okay with it, man, and are very happy in their lives. They explain impassionedly in some cases that it gets better. You know, you may be feeling bullied right now. You may be feeling like, you know, you've been kicked out of your house, whatever. But it gets better. Mm -hmm. You will get through this. And it's, you know, it's specifically geared at at gay teens or people who are coming out at that time and going through a very challenging, varying degrees of challenging um, personal experience. But also it's relevant to anybody who's going through a particular hardship. It gets better, you know. And and that's, that's a really positive aspect of the web is that it's allowed people who felt that they were different, who felt that they had a particular kink or a particular fetish or or whatever it was, and it was completely bizarre and weird. And it's allowed them to just kind of come to terms with that through open communication. So, yeah, I mean, I personally think the sex positive movement is really positive because it kind of deals with all of this in a really grown-up way. I'll just add that... Don't psychologically damage other people, listeners, is is, is the key thing. But if you want to psychologically damage yourself, knock yourself out, that's all good. (laughs) 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. This week I'm talking to Alex Kratoski and we're talking about her book Untangling the Web, What the Internet is Doing to You. We've just been talking about the chapter in the book on sex, what the internet is or what it's not doing, to our attitudes towards sex. In the book you've also got a, a pair of chapters, one called Love and one called Hate, and the loved one looks at uh, internet dating and how you know how um, how the internet's perhaps changed relationships, but we're slightly going to unbalance things and, and go directly to the, to the hate chapter. And this is basically about, I guess, anonymous trolls on the yeah, internet being, being horrible to people. There's been a lot of talk recently, you know, missing Misogyny online, particularly, is something that's incredibly newsworthy recently. And there's it's not d- recent. <laughs> I can <laughs> no. tell you, I got some pretty nasty things in the late nineties. Extraordinary things. 
But it does seem to be something that people are finally taking notice of. Then perhaps you know it's, it, it's something that people have decided that they're you know they're mad as hell and they're not going to take anymore. There's a concept in this in this chapter I want to talk about in depth a little, which is something called the individualization um which sounds like another another one you you made up earlier let's talk about uh, let's talk about what this one means well that thankfully i can say that i didn't make it up and i didn't make it up earlier um the term is actually de-individuation okay so well, you've added yeah. extra syllables yeah, well, yeah that's, makes, that's what made it even more even well, more of a see, you made it up right yeah exactly it's much easier than you think and it actually is much easier than you think it was actually um conceived of as it were by a psychologist, social psychologist named Philip Zimbardo. And Zimbardo is probably most famous for his 1973 Stanford prison experiment in which people who were randomly given the role of, of prison guard abused terribly the people who were randomly given the role of of prisoner. And that was actually at a time, an interesting time in psychology history where people were trying to figure out about authority and you know that had been something that ever since after the second world war Mm -hmm. people were trying to figure out why people do such horrible things to one another anyway but that as an aside zimbardo started thinking about de-individuation when he tried to replicate an experiment a famous experiment by a scientist named stanley milgram Mm -hmm. and the milgram experiment is that a participant comes into the room is given a series of questions and speaks to somebody on the other end of a sort of radio line who's in another room and know what this participant is led to believe is that the other person has sort of got shocks shock things all over him or her and at any point that the person in the other room the one covered in shocking things answers one of the questions wrong then the participant is to give them an electric shock and then increase the voltage and then give them an electric shock and increase the voltage until they get the answer right right it's sort of quite a cruel thing the result of the experiment was it was it was enormously shocking for <laughs> sorry <laughs> enormously shocking that the participants would shock the people in the other room to apparent death of course being psychology and being the the great manipulators that we are everything that was happening in the other room was actually a recording and the person who was actually being studied was the person who was turning the shocks on so there was a lot of research in this because it was such a an incredible finding and so there was all different kinds of permutations to this. And Zimbardo and some of the other some of the other folks around at that time were also playing around with this and were very curious as to what anonymity did to the experience of shocking people. You know, because they'd tried everything. They'd tried like, you know, different genders, they'd tried people in lab coats, they tried people in sort of outfits, whatever. So what this cohort, these this group of, of scientists were doing at the time was they found, or Zimbardo found, that if somebody had a name tag on, then they were less likely to do such a thing, right? To, to shock somebody to death. They would you know, interrupt or whatever. But if they didn't have a name tag on, then they were anonymized, and so therefore they you know, ramped it up as quickly as they possibly could. But then another bunch of uh, scientists came along and said, well, hold on a second. Anonymity isn't the only issue here, yeah. right? So, And they had run this really delightful and lovely experiment that could only be run in the 60s, which was um, they turned all the lights off. They, they let people go into this sort of dark room and uh, watch to see what they did. And they were completely anonymous. And whatever happened inside the box stayed inside the box. We're talking about sex box again. What happened inside the box stayed inside the box and nobody was identified in any way. And rather than like 
kick the hell out of one another, they actually found that people were very affectionate to one another. Not necessarily in like a hanky-panky kind of way, but just like, you know, very affectionate Quite to Trying not to bump another. into each other. And yeah, that, yeah, but, yeah, but also sort of there was touching, but not sexual touching, but there was, you know, there was, there was more affection that was going on. <laughs> These two scientists said, well, hold on a second. This anonymity thing is not... It's not the only thing that's going on. And so they re-ran those experiments, the Milgram experiments, and they put one group of people in Ku Klux Klan-like outfits and one group of people in nurse-like outfit to see, in fact, what was happening. And it turns out that what happened was that the people who were in the nurse-like outfits shocked people less and the people in the Ku Klux Klan outfits shocked people more. Now going back to de-individuation, what Philip Zimbardo argued um, when he did his initial research is that when people are anonymous... They are, and he uses this expression, they are of organism, right? They are kind of at one with everyone. They lose their sense of identity, and therefore they kind of act with the group, right? In whichever way the group goes. It's not that, you know, they're particularly evil or that they're particularly nasty people or even particularly good people. It's just that they kind of act within the organism. And then this was expanded further by the other researchers who ultimately said that you're right, de-individuation is very responsive to the context. And so what seems to happen online is that we're not actually talking about anonymity because when we're anonymous, we give up absolutely every little Mm -hmm. element of who we are, right? But in fact, online, we give little clues away about ourselves all the time, right? Where you give away our profile names, we give away profile pictures, we give away networks that we're in, even just the way that we use language, how quickly we type on a screen gives away little bits of information, how we construct sentences. Seriously, like if you type really quickly, people think you're more trustworthy. If you ask questions a lot, people think that you're a female. Like, that these are some of the assumptions that have been pretty consistent throughout computer-mediated research. And what happens within the context of de-individuation is that people, when there is an absence, as it were, of kind of identity cues and markers, they will tend to conform to the people that they think are like themselves. And that's in both attitudes mm-hmm. and behavior. So they'll do things and think things like people that they think are like themselves. And the only way that they know that they think that they're like themselves is because they ask questions a lot or because they type really quickly or they give something, you know, give some information away about that. And so really, that's one aspect of de-individuation. And the other aspect of de-individuation is that thinking about the context. If you go into YouTube, you know that it's acceptable to make really nasty, horrible statements. Mm -hmm. And so people go there and they do that, right? It's like a poison within a community. Mm -hmm. Or if you go into a completely different community, like people used to talk about Flickr as being the exact opposite, where it's a very supportive community, where you get really positive comments. You get people saying, you can do this, you can do great things. Even though people are still anonymous... They're acting in a very different way. And so therefore, my argument ultimately about the web and about hate is that we are de-individuated to a degree. We give away little bits about ourselves, but we, we have a sense that we are out there and we're ambiguous and there is no consequence. And so therefore, we respond to the context. We respond to the cues. It's unfortunate that so much of the internet says, hey, yeah, it's okay to, to hurl you know, to hurl this at somebody. But it's also important to remember that that's not the only experience of online. So anonymity per se does not, or de-individuation per se, does not lead to hate. It's the context in which people perform those activities that you have to look at. 
as opposed to the the individual who has been de-individuated. But I mean, anonymity is, I mean, it's a simple answer. So it's something that's always thrown up whenever there's any talk about how to deal with misogynistic internet trolls or, you know, if people weren't, people couldn't log on to the comment is free under, <laughs> under an anonymous name, this thing wouldn't happen. And I mean, you have just mentioned that it's important to remember that this is not the whole internet, it's certain areas of it. But the women, for instance, who habituate those areas where it is like that, Obviously, to them, it feels like it's the entire internet because that's why they they spend... So what is... You know, we can't answer this question in the remaining time we've got, but what are the solutions to that? And if it's not, if anonymity is something that we should be protecting as a valuable thing, what is the solution? Is it just about better policing of those areas by the individual groups that run them? And again, can we do that now with an internet that has millions rather than hundreds of people using those things? Oh, completely, because we've splintered off into different communities Mm -hmm. to the degree that, to the extent that it is possible to only interact with people like yourself online. And that's fine. That's that's a whole different conversation. Uh, I spoke with primarily what you're kind of asking about is how do we deal with trolling behavior and, mm. and cyberbullying and stuff. And I spoke with a, a researcher. She's at Lancaster. Oh, I wish I could remember her name. I spoke with her for the Guardian's Tech Weekly podcast not long ago. And she she did her PhD looking at how to curb trolling behaviors or rather she did her phd kind of classifying different kinds of trolling behaviors and her next bit of research was trying to understand how to counteract that and when we spoke she said that she hypothesizes she has observed a couple of different successful approaches the first is to block that's a pretty simple straightforward but that doesn't always solve the problem and that goes back to the virtual death penalty that i mentioned earlier in the podcast Other alternatives, she says that this is a very effective but an incredibly high stakes alternative is to basically like encourage the troll, feed the troll, you know, kind of mock the troll back until such time as the troll realizes that he or she is not actually getting what Mm -hmm. it is that she or he wants, usually attention. And so they are getting attention if you, if you, yeah, constantly. but if you're doing it in a particular way, and how did she describe it, you know, basically saying to somebody, oh, is that, is that the best you've got? Come on, give me some more. No, no, really, that's really, that's shit. Come on, more. Yeah? All right, come on. You know, so that kind of thing. Just basically baiting the troll until such time as he or she realizes that it's more hassle to do that. But as she said, it is high stakes because the troll could potentially get really, really angry and end up finding out where you are. Yeah, and then people who are spending good money on getting that sort of treatment as well. So to be honest, it doesn't seem like that's... That seems like something that's going to be more exciting to the troll than it is Refer back to the Dan Savage (laughs) section, right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I would love to have the answer to that, but I am am less informed than the person who's doing the research. I can only parrot back what she said to me. I'm Marcus Chown, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I mentioned earlier that we were going to get back to the issues of privacy that there are on the internet. And I said, you know, we've we've spent years putting loads and loads of personal data on the internet, often without thinking of the consequences. But at the same time, a lot of people will perhaps think that, say, you know, say I set up a Facebook profile, I'm giving a lot of my personal information to Facebook, but as part of that bargain, I'm getting 
whatever it is that people get out of being on Facebook. You know, the fun of poking people. People don't poke people anymore, do they? And so they don't throw it. zombies or sheep. Do you remember No, that doesn't happen anymore, sheep? does it? No, I don't When did poking so. stop it? Just, just I still have people on the side that say, blah, blah, has poked you. No, like, I oh. never, get, never get that anymore. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, that was an aside. <laughs> whatever, the, whatever the point of being on Facebook is, that's what we get in our part of the bargain, the Faustian Pact with Zuckerberg. But what are they getting out of it? Let's talk about what Facebook is doing. We'll use Facebook as an example, but, you know, obviously every internet company that's a massive monolithic company. What are they doing with our data? And you talk in the book about Facebook's purchase of Instagram for like a billion pounds a while back and how a lot of people were surprised by this. A lot of money to spend on a little app that takes photographs. Um, I use both of those things. Why does Facebook want my Instagram photographs? So I spoke with... Lord Richard Allen, who is the head of Facebook Europe. I think he's the head of Facebook Europe. He's the head of policy in Facebook Europe. And we were talking about identity. We were talking about sort of privacy, but mostly identity. And he said that for Facebook... Well, actually, let's go back for a second. Facebook is... What do people get out of it? They get online. You think about the difference between how many people were online before Facebook and online now. The stereotypical example would be like your auntie is now on mm. the internet because she's because Facebook is there, right? She connects with her friends and all that kind of thing. And that is comforting for one very, very important reason. And that is the, the raison d'etre to Facebook is that it's an identity authenticator, mm-hmm. right? That's what it is. Before the internet, you weren't sure if the person on the other side was a dog. Now, of course, you're like, oh, the person on the other side because they have that wallet name and because they have their social network etc that's definitely the person on, on the other side and so lord allen and i were talking about this and he said that facebook uses three things to decide if somebody is who they say they are mm-hmm. to authenticate them and one is their wallet name they have to use their real name the second is your social network because your friends you can tell who somebody is based upon who their friends are. So it kind of behooves Facebook to get as many of your friends on board, certainly, for that particular purpose. And the third thing, and I found this fascinating, is photographs. They say that your your photographs are the other thing that authenticates you. And so my argument, my proposal, is that they bought... Instagram because there was a bunch of people who were using Instagram that weren't on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, well, you know, or half the people were using Facebook and half weren't. But there was a, it was simply a different network. And the way that Facebook works is that you only have reciprocated relationships versus something like Twitter where it can be unreciprocated. So I can follow you, but you don't follow me, that kind of thing. What Facebook got out of Instagram was that unreciprocated network, half of whom already had Facebook accounts. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly Facebook's social graph got really, really big because it identified the people who were on Instagram and who were on Facebook, put them into the same bucket, and then added friends who you were friends with on Instagram by kind of seeing who you were connected with Mm -hmm. there. And so they kind of basically, they expanded their social graph. And the reason why that's important is, as I mentioned, Facebook kind of operates as an authenticator. And so it, it behooves them to have as many connections as possible that are available for anybody to kind of look at and to see, but also because it means that they then have more data points with which to package you up and sell you to the highest bidder. Well, this is what I wanted to get to because 
we all know that. We all know that the likes of Facebook and Twitter, they're services that are, you know, they're valued on the stock exchange at billions and billions of pounds, but they don't necessarily seem to do anything. We know that in some vague way that they're making it all their money from advertising. But, you know, when I look at my Facebook page, I can't believe that this service that's trying to set me up with 40-something unfeasibly large-breasted Russian women has that much money to pay for this advertising. I never get Purcell or Volvo or Heinz Baked Beans advertising to me on Facebook. Now, does that say more about my browsing preferences? Where are the, all of these other companies that are supposed to be advertising? That says more about your browsing preferences. I never look at brain. Russian wives' <laughs> websites. I don't know where it comes from at all. Yeah. I have started getting adverts for um, over 40s dating, which is... <laughs> I mean, I am over 40, but that, that obviously started appearing at some point. So that algorithm really, is obviously really, working because exactly. my, my date of birth is on there. But Yeah, no, well, funnily enough, there are certain things that I that I refuse to look at on my computer just because I just don't want that information to be cropping back up again. It's not even like dark, dark stuff. It's just stuff that I think, no, this is a this is my personal information. Like, I don't want to have those adverts sort of cropping up on the side. Like, this is... Ah, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to stick that into a search machine. But there must be, well, I mean, my point is that there must be, where are these proper companies that are advertising? Because I ne- never see it. I never see it. And of course I use Adblocker and all of that sort of thing. So I guess that gets rid of a lot of things. But it always amazes me when I read about the value of these companies, because beyond the fact that they might be selling data in to, you know, to the NSA in some nefarious way, or to Chinese intelligence companies or something I don't know I can't for the life of me work out where they're, where they're making their money well like I mean some of the classic examples is when somebody announces that they're that they're engaged mm-hmm. on Facebook and then suddenly they get nothing but photography mm-hmm. you know ads and those kinds of things the I mean what you're ultimately questioning is their algorithm their mm. ability to produce the goods now I don't know if you've asked anybody else about this whether they get more relevant advertising than you do but i can imagine that for the majority of people they will have much much more relevant yeah. advertising no, see, i don't i don't really like to talk about my browsing history and luckily we're having this conversation and nobody else is nobody's, gonna hit nobody's gonna else nobody's hear listening that. that's the great thing <laughs> that nobody else will, will get to overhear this conversation <laughs> large breasted russian women is that right over 40 over women 40s. looking for husbands looking for husbands yeah i'd love to see your browsing history <laughs> <laughs> um, let's just finish off then and talk about I should say there's loads of really great stuff in this book about internet revolution and things like that but unfortunately I'm sorry people who might be listening in the Ukraine or, or Tunisia I'm going to skip over all of that by the book um, but let's just finish up and talk about there's a chapter at the end about the future of the internet and what I found most interesting out of this part was this idea that I've never really thought about before, which is that, you know, you talk about the internet, it's not a neutral medium. We know that, you know, if I go on the Guardian's website, if I pick up the Guardian newspaper, I know that it's a left-wing newspaper, but I have no idea of the politics of Facebook, for instance. You know, it's not there, it's not obvious, it's not apparent. Yes, of course, these companies do not exist in an apolitical vacuum. 
That's exactly right. And that's actually something that I become increasingly interested in. In fact, I'm just about to publish a report with the Nominate Trust on exactly this. We spent the last sort of year looking at what I describe and what it's, I sort of adopted this word, um, techno-fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. We have a tendency as a society, we turn to our machines to mm-hmm. give us the answers. And we think, you know, computer says no was a, was a hilarious meme that kind of ricocheted around for a while. It seems to have dropped off the radar, but that's kind of the point. If computer says no, we say no. If computer says yes, then we say, oh, okay, that's fine. And I think that more than anything, the next era of the web is going to be about this kind of literacy, is going to be asking who are the people behind the machines? Who is the wizard behind the curtain? Mm -hmm. Because every decision that they make that we interact with is in some ways fed by their existing lens, their bias, how they see the world. Not necessarily nefariously Mm -hmm. in any way. There is an interesting trend in design circles at the moment where people are starting to recognize their role. See, it's not just about how nice something looks. It's how people navigate Mm -hmm. through it. And also, and I need to be very careful here because I, I think that I don't believe that the internet is doing anything to you and so therefore to suggest that you know a political aspect of a technology will do something to you i I, that's a sort of very determinist point of view Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of different elements that come in to why you do things and why you think things but i think that in the way that we have a literacy a way of understanding other media, whether it's because we learned how to write essays when we were at school or because we've spent enough time recognizing that the Daily Mail is different from, mm-hmm. from The Guardian. We also know that, you know, journalists, for example, might do selective interviewing or they may use a particular font or they may use, you know, a particular selection of words for the headline. And we recognize that those have a point. There's a reason for those things to exist. They're there to capture our attention, mm-hmm. to tell a story in a particular way. We also have to remember that stories are told through software. Mm -hmm. We just don't yet have a full understanding of what that is. And a good example of that is, you know, people... I remember Judy before she died, my stepmother. She and I had this huge conversation just a couple of months ago about the fact that, you know, she was... She said, well, when I'm in Britain, I search for things and I find completely different things in Britain. And then when I'm in the States, and I said, well, that's because you're searching a different... It's not a different Google. Mm -hmm. It's just a different selection of things. Things that Google thinks is more interesting and relevant. And I say Google, it's not like the Google person is saying that, but the algorithm says is more interesting and relevant to people who are in the UK. The Google so, hamsters. Yes, exactly. You can hear the squeaking. Look, hear the squeaking? Um, But yeah, so the fact is, is that my search for something could come up with different results than your search for something because it's very much based upon all of Mm -hmm. the stuff that it decides is relevant and valuable to me. Why does it decide that's relevant and valuable? What does it think relevance and value are? It's basically this kind of weird relationship between who you think you are as a human being and who you are as a being in cyberspace. So I want to, I've been very interested in trying to figure out how designers and, and developers and software engineers kind of get rid of all the messiness of human beings and what's left is something that's not quite human, mm-hmm. but is more machine. How well does that map onto who I think I am? And is this service actually providing to me the best solutions? We just have to stop believing the damn machine. I think, honestly, I think that the reason why we think the internet is doing something to us, or the reason why we think the polemic arguments, you know, it's it's destroying the world, it's saving the world, it's, you know, eating our brains, it's feeding our brains, whatever it is, is simply because 
we have given it power. We have said to internet, tell me what to do, mm -hmm. tell me what to think. We don't have to do that. We can be critical. Just because Google says yes, or Facebook says no, or Twitter says go ahead, doesn't mean that we should. You know, just think about it a little bit more. And I think that's a really important next stage in our digital literacy. So the point is not what the Internet's doing to us, but what we're doing to the Internet. Pretty much. Stop thinking it's magic, right? It's not magic. It's an amazing device. It's extraordinary. And, and you know, what it does in terms of its giant, massive calculating brain is phenomenal. But it's not magic. There is a man behind the curtain. And more often than not, he's a man, right? There is a man behind the curtain. And what's he doing? You know, I, I want to find out what that is. That's all we've got time for then. So I've been talking to Alex Kratowski about her book, Untangling the Web, What the Internet is Doing for You, which is out now from Faber Books. And excitingly, as this is a show talking about tech-savvy stuff, we've got a code? Is it we do, place? yes. So if you want to purchase the book, how do we do it? So um, from today until Wednesday the 18th of December, which is the last order date for Christmas, all you have to do is go to theguardian.com slash bookshop and look for Untangling the Web and put the code UNTANGLING into where it asks for a code and you can get copies of Untangling the Web for £6.50, which is 50% off the retail price. Fantastic, and I'll tweet that as well cool. when, the, uh, when the podcast goes out. So Alex, thank you very much for joining me on Little Amps today. Thank you very much for having me, Neil. I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So I'm on the phone with critic Matthew Sweet, and Matthew, I've asked you to choose a thing to talk about, a book or a film or a TV programme, something that you'd like to recommend or something that you just love. So what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about Went the Day Well, which is an Ealing film, but a very uncharacteristic Ealing film in some ways. I suppose we think of Ealing for the comedies. And When the Day Well has some of the same personnel in common. And when I say personnel, I mean the, the sort of stock characters who you meet in the world of Ealing, the postmistress, the village eccentric, the vicar, those sort of people. They're all deployed in When the Day Well. But When the Day Well is closer to straw dogs than it is to uh, Passport to Pimlico. It's yeah, a I brutal film. I don't remember the, uh, the postmistress in Passport to Pimlico or Whiskey's Glow offing someone with an axe, for instance. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is the scene at the dark heart of this film. The story is about an English village during the war to which a platoon of soldiers are stationed. And the villagers slowly realise that these soldiers are not British soldiers. They're German soldiers in disguise and they're part of a secret um, invasion spearhead. And this means that all of these rather godly characters who were used to populating the landscape of Ealing have to turn into partisans and essentially kill these soldiers one by one in the most extraordinarily savage way. At the centre of it is, I still think, one of the most shocking scenes in English cinema. It's of the postmistress who's taken in one of these soldiers and is giving him breakfast. And he's sitting at the breakfast table and he's being rather brutal and, and playing the, the stock Nazi to some extent. And she starts to talk wistfully about how she and her husband couldn't have children. And as she gets to the end of this thought, she 
opens up the pepper pot that he's been struggling with and she hurls the pepper into his eyes and while he is flaming around she runs panting into the next room gets the axe from next to the arga and kills him with it and there's a moment of tremendous tension because then she has to get news to the next village of what's happening, this secret invasion. But she's a rather unpopular figure. So as she's jabbing away at the switchboard, trying to get the news through, the telephonist in the next village sees the little light come up and says, ah, she can wait. And she can't wait because as she's uh, trying to get this message through, another soldier comes through the door of the post office with a bayonet. And you know, it's, it's all up for her, really. So this is a, a film of remarkable savagery and brutality. Now, we should talk about the circumstances under which it was made as well, because it's often difficult to get into that mindset at a distance, watching something at a distance, but it was made during the war. It was made, as it turns out, in hindsight, probably after there was any danger of, of um, you know, Operation Sea Lion, which was uh, Hitler's plan for the invasion of, of the UK, had been put on hold. But obviously they didn't know that at the time. Well, they did, actually. I mean, to some extent, this was a film made after the scare it was created by was over. I mean, the invasion of scare had more or less um, dissipated by the moment this film was made. I mean, the idea was still in everybody's heads. But the clever thing about the film is that it set a long way after the war and it opens with the sexton in the churchyard played by Mervyn Johns talking to you direct into the camera and describing the moment at which uh, this battle took place and uh, you know now looking at it you think uh, that this was an idea that was that seemed an urgent possibility but I actually think that you know even I'm sure whether during the time when the invasion scare was at its height whether it would have been quite possible to make a film as stark as this and so it comes a little later but still you know watching that you I mean, all of that drifts away and it, it still must have had a, a tremendous uh, power to it and it still has it I mean I've, I've often seen this film with an audience and the effect it has is extraordinary. I saw it the last time I saw it was about a year ago at a festival in Ludlow where it was screened. And we were amazed to discover that one of the Ealing Continuity Girls had turned up and was watching it and was there in the auditorium. But once the film is over and you've been on this rather harrowing journey with all of these characters, there was a sort of stillness in the cinema. Everybody sat there rather quietly and it put people into an interesting emotional zone. There's also quite an interesting... The village where this action happens, it's, as you already mentioned, like a very sort of stock English countryside, bucolic Mm. village. And it's got actually what seems, even at that stage, quite an old-fashioned class structure, hasn't it? There's a very obvious, you know, the lady of the manor, and there's, you know, goes all the way down to a, a poacher at the other end of the scale. But what's really striking about that, first of all, there's an interesting way in which you see the sort of classes all sort of working together for the greater good. But also, it's striking the guy who turns out to be the traitor is also part of the ostensibly the upper classes of the village, which I think is quite striking. Yeah, it's very significant, that, I think, absolutely. I mean, we get that what is the rather standard wartime idea of people from different backgrounds coming together to solve the problem, to devote themselves to the war efforts. I mean, it's presented in films like The Bells Go Down, where you get people like there's a a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, an ex-policeman, you know, people from different backgrounds being brought together. But here it is much more critical, possibly because, you know, this is a film directed by a Brazilian. This is the work of Alberto Cavalcanti, so it's a film made with an outsider's eye. And you get a sort of class solidarity, but it absolutely 
it has its limits, and I don't think we're being invited to see it as a, as, as a random fact that it's the squire who is the one with the Nazi sympathies. So you do get a sense that an echelon of British society, those members of the of the gentry who might have been, you know, been members of pan-German associations and would have had sympathies, would have supported the Munich Agreement. You do have a sense that those people are being put to one side and, and moved back into the past and that once the war is over, there won't really be a place for them. Let's talk about the influence that this film had then on the later Ealing work. We've mentioned that the obvious ones like Whiskey Galore and Passport to Pimlico, which are nice of the gentle comedies, mm. have that same sort of stock characters. But also, of course, Ealing Studios stable also has The Lady Killers and Kind Hearts and Coronets, which are comedies about violent death, yeah. basically. Yes. Well, this is current through Ealing. I mean, I think we underestimate Ealing. We think of the coziness of a film like the Titfield Thunderbolt, where a branch line is closed down and a group of eccentrics decide to start running the railway system. Well, that coziness is relatively late and relatively rare in Ealing. And actually, there is a hard edge to the Ealing film that we've chosen to ignore, I think, uh, historically. The history of Ealing, the history of British cinema was written up by people who were, I mean, not always entirely sympathetic towards Ealing. There was a lot of negativity towards Ealing in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And I think, you know, John Major's remarks about, you know, nannies cycling across village greens and uh, the evocation of the idea of Ealing in that sort of context as giving it these conservative associations, maybe small and large C. But actually, this was a studio full of radicals. Ealing was quite a red place during the war years. Michael Balkan was a close ally of uh, the Labour Party, great friend of Hugh Gates' school. Hugh Gates' school gave his daughter, Sally, a little rubber duck that was called Gates' school. They were on that sort of terms with them. And uh, Balkan was part of a committee met during the war to decide what a socialist Britain would look like after the war. So there is this hard political edge to them that survives the war period and goes into the post-war period. So you, you get films about uh, doctors deciding to give up private practice and go into the NHS. Ealing absolutely signs up to the ethos of Atlee's Britain. But then you also get this strange sardonic uh, line through it that you see in films like Kind Hearts and Coronets and The Lady Killers, which, you know, as you point out, is a pretty savage film. But there is a sort of conservatism about the lady killers in a way and maybe if you were looking for a point where that idea sets in then that would be a, a good one to choose because although there's this carnage in the lady killers there's a sort of reassertion of edwardian values in the lady killers because of who it is who wins the little old lady with her with her parrot there's an interesting scene which um shows the face of churchill chalked on the street that suggests that the tide is turning rather I'd like to compare this film now to other films of the same type. So there's no getting away from the fact that this is a film made quickly during wartime as a piece of wartime propaganda. And yet we're talking about it however many years later as a classic film. And there, there are, I guess, other ones of a similar role, something like The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp or Casablanca even or... Mrs. Miniver, or you know, films that were that were basically propaganda films, and yet there was obviously a lot of rubbish propaganda films made that we don't remember now. So, what do you think makes this one stand out so much? Well, I think there's because there's so much uh, at stake. I mean, I don't know whether I put Mrs. Miniver on that list. Mrs. Miniver seems an absurd confection to me, but went the day well. Has this stark vein 
running through it and there's a desperation about it and uh, and yes i mean all films are these frail traveling coincidences of people and chemicals and light and money you know all films are the products of these strange coalitions that can be uh, can be grouped together in a matter of weeks and everybody goes home and the length of time that uh, is spent on the planning of a film doesn't necessarily have any relationship with its quality so i think in many ways some of the best films do happen in this slightly haphazard way and you get all kinds of forces shaping their nature so it's not just to do with the talents of the people involved but there's something about the historical moment that they they're interacting with and i think that's what's going on in this film it brought all of these people together people with different points of view very very different backgrounds at a time of emergency and desperation. And I think, in a way, there was a strange sort of freedom within that system during the war. And, in a way, that imperative to produce propaganda for the nation, rather than sort of stifling something, open something up in people, there is a, a sort of willingness to contemplate a sort of Armageddon, in a way, that you get in the Ealing films of this period. There's a speech in The Bells Go Down, which is about a fireman working during the Blitz, where a character played by William Hartnell is with his uh, colleagues in the pub, and some of them are being laughed at and teased by soldiers who think that being a fireman isn't a proper job, is a job for people who are terribly brave. And... Um, the Hartnell character turns to them and says, well, let them laugh, because if they were taking us seriously, that would mean that there was some order of catastrophe, some greater order of catastrophe happening in London at that point. And actually, when they stop laughing, that means that perhaps that some kind of doom has to be faced. That's a rather profound point for us to finish on. So we've been talking about went the day well which is a it's a ealing film it's uh directed by alberto cavalcanti produced by michael balcon and you, you can see it all over the place it's out there and easy enough to see i think that, um, there might even be a version on on youtube but it's easy to oh, don't recommend it on youtube there's a beautiful restoration of it done by um studio canal so that's probably the one to find you've been listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture this episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.